This is Jewish Board Talk with Sharice Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. Israel is fighting a war it did not want nor ask for. Yet seven weeks later, it is committed to finishing the job of eradicating Hamas and bringing back the hostages. After that, then what? My guest now, Sam Hyde, is a South African-Israeli political researcher and writer at the Jewish People Policy Institute and has some thoughts on this. Sam, welcome back. And Thank you. Lovely to see you again. How are you? Good. I'm keeping safe, keeping well. It's great to see you too. Thank you for having me. Sam, you have some thoughts on what the next step is. Yes. Um, I mean, you know, I think that I've said for a while, war is obviously a short-term endeavor. Even in the case of a prolonged war, even if Israel had to carry out a nine-month campaign, at the end of the day, war is a short-term endeavor and politics is a long-term experiment. And it's usually conducted, as we know, on millions of people, and it's subject to few ethical constraints. The problem that I have right now, what's going on, is everyone, it's very clear to everyone in Israel uh, what the military objective of this campaign is. It's less clear today, as we stand, because of the hostage deal that we're speaking about, whether or not um, that military um, goal will actually be achieved, because there's tension, obviously, there between the ability to release all the hostages and the ability to carry on the military campaign as stated originally. There's been very little talk about um, the day after strategy, which it's called. It's come mainly from the Americans. It's come from some of the Arab states. Occasionally, Netanyahu um, says a statement and, and releases a part of his idea, uh, which have been problematic, to say the least, but I haven't been alarmed by it uh, per se because I don't think that he will be the one who will be making those decisions. Um, however, I think that the problem is here is that if, if you want to take what the Americans in the Arab world are saying, the allies within the Arab world, the allies to Israel, uh, that would be the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, Jordan, Egypt, um, and Saudi, who have, who have said that they're willing to, to resume the talks post the war, um, if you listen to them, they want to use this as an opportunity essentially to get to a two-state solution at some point, which I don't think is as crazy as people think theoretically because at the end of the day, Egypt and uh, Egypt and Israel in the 70s made peace uh, because of the 1973 Yom Kippur War, not in spite of it. The situation become, became untenable. I think the problem of what prohibits a two-state solution here is not um, Jerusalem, it's not the division of territory, it's not the military occupation or military rule over the West Bank, it's not even the settlements which have expanded, um, some of them are quite deep into the West Bank, really it's an ideological battle. And I think that if the Americans are smart and they want to get to this point, then what they'll do is return to... Um, the quote-unquote radical thinking that they had post-World War II. So we know that there were essentially three uh, plans that happened in the aftermath of World War II. The first one was the Atlantic Charter, which was drawn up by Churchill and Roosevelt, and that recognized that the Allies would not use the victory in war as an opportunity to expand their territory. Uh, in other words, what came of that was the fall of colonial empires and the birth of nation-states. Israel is, is one of those states that gains its independence as a result of um, the, the, the thinking behind the Atlantic Charter, let's put it that way. 
The other one is obviously the Marshall Plan, which focused mainly on economic recovery um, of Europe. It also had some ideological components, the denazification of Germany. But the Americans were very successful in their post-conflict initiative of Imperial Japan. Uh, despite the fact that they dropped two atomic bombs on Japan and really decimated the country and defeated it, the Americans at that point realized something very important, that it doesn't matter how badly you defeat someone militarily if the ideology is still able to persist. Now, the reason why I say this is because we know, and we know this for a fact you do, multiple levels of polling out of Gaza over the years, that there's actually more people who support Hamas in the West Bank than there are in Gaza, and there's more people in Gaza that support the Palestinian Authority than there are in the West Bank. Sure. So basically what that is, is there's this, there's this, uh, basically each, each group of Palestinians living in each territory wants the other leadership because they're not satisfied with the leadership they have. So Gazans, there's a lot of Gazans who do not support Hamas, do not support Hamas's objectives, however, in, in the way in which they carry it out. However, we know from those same pollings that most Palestinians do actually believe in a Palestinian state from the river to the sea. Mm-hmm. And I believe that it is that, that idea, that ideology that drives that, which has always been the prohibition to a two-state solution. Uh, of course, Israel's not an innocent angel in this, but until we can um, basically look at that ideology and work out strategies and how we can subdue that to not be the dominant force within Palestinian society, and it can still be held by 60% of the population, you just need a dominant force that is a leadership that could be identified um, within Palestinian society that is willing, essentially, to uh, undergo and assume the responsibility of what a what a deep ideological social paradigm shift is is necessary within that society to reach the two-state solution. And the reason I, uh, and I'll end with this, the reason why I still speak about the two-state solution, despite the failure of it at Camp David, one and two, in Tava in 2001, and despite what, we, what we're witnessing here, is I do believe that the two-state solution is still the only solution that gives a modicum of justice to both peoples without trampling on the other. And I think that it's in Israel's best long-term um, uh, interests. That's what I really care about. I care about what is in my my country's best interests. Uh, I'm not approaching this from any sort of John Lennon-esque uh, give peace a chance moment. Uh, I, I call it really a national divorce, which I think is is, is necessary. So, Sam, I think we're going to take, it makes good sense to take our advert break now. And then when we come back, look at how this two-state ideologically can be created. This is Jewish Board Talk with Sharice Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. And I'm talking to Sam Hyde, South African Israeli political researcher and writer at the Jewish People Policy Institute. Sam, one state, two state, three states. They were all of, <laughs> they were all of the table at a certain time. Um, people are just kind of, I think, I imagine it's very stressful in Israel at the moment, especially today. Um, what you believe that the best solution is still a, still a two-state solution? Well, I think a one-state solution is inherently flawed for the Jewish people themselves. At the end of the day, the, the Zionist, uh, the, the three tenets, one could say, of the Zionist project was a Jewish state, a democratic state within secure borders. Um, the one-state solution achieves none of those or some of them. 
um, because at the end of the day, when you look at the demographics, um, you've pretty much got a 50-50% between Jews and Arabs between the river to the sea. That would include Arab Israeli citizens as well as Palestinians. Um, it's a very bad idea to have uh, two ethnic majorities basically fighting over that. But when you when you that that lands up looking like Yugoslavia, Syria, and Lebanon, uh, so we've got sufficient evidence on how that can turn out. Um, and when you look at what happened on October seventh, I think that it was a nice uh, a view into into a situation that that no one needs. Um, when you look at the so that could affect your your the Jewish fabric of your state, the demographic issue. Because basically what could happen at that point, the Palestinians have a higher birth rate than even the Haredim in Israel. So they will be a majority at some point. So you lose the Jewish fabric of the state demographically. If you want to maintain the Jewish sovereign rule over the state, well, then you're doing that as a minority. Well, you would have to essentially uh, suppress civic and national rights of the majority, at which point you would actually... At this point, you would actually legitimately have an apartheid state. And you certainly wouldn't have secure borders. I always say that the one-state solution would only serve to change the name of the conflict from the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to the Jewish-Arab civil war. Now, it's presented as very lofty by, you know, a whole bunch of Western academics on, on the far left. It's also the position of the hard right in Israel. So it's interesting they both... The hard right in Israel and the far left in the West, they both hate each other, yet they're both concubines of the same fairy tale. Um, the, bina- the binational model has been tried in many, in many ways, uh, and it's been a disaster for the two populations, and it certainly will be a, dos- a disaster with 75 years of blood and conflict uh, as a backdrop. Um, I don't call what I necessarily am speaking about as the two-state solution. I call it a national divorce. I don't think anyone in Israel right now, I don't have the moral authority to speak on behalf of the Palestinians. I don't really know much of their their population, um, besides for a few. But I don't think that they entertain, uh, even at a public level, the idea of a two-state solution. Uh, There are some, but not right now, uh, because we're in the midst of a a terrible war. but we need a national divorce, essentially, from this population that is across the Green Line or in Gaza. This is all dependent on exactly how the military campaign plays out, right? I mean, if if Israel has to halt its military campaign right now, well, then the two-state solution will be further away than it's ever been. Uh, that's just the reality. Um, but I also, I don't ignore at the end of the day of what was happening here and why why I do think it's essential for Hamas to be defeated um, besides obviously for what we experienced on October 7th and the subsequent 10,000 or so rockets that have been fired uh, at us since then is Israel was very close to forging a historic peace deal with Saudi Arabia and that was set to normalize relations with a, a, lot, a, a lot of other Arab countries as well and it was to come with concessions to the Palestinians and reignite the, the peace process so I always say, when I look at Hamas, I don't want to just defeat them militarily. I want to defeat them in every single capacity that we can. One of their objectives was psychological warfare. I don't want to be, um, I don't want to play into that, that, uh, that, uh, evil, sick game of theirs. 
if they wanted to assassinate peace, I want to find, find a way in which we can get back to the deal with the Saudis and see how that works. The same with, with the military. So a lot of people are driven, obviously, by natural resentment for, for what has happened and therefore reject any idea of um, a settlement or a resolution. Let's not call it peace because it won't be that, but some sort of national settlement. Uh, but that's really, uh, in a way, playing into the hands of Hamas. That was one of their objectives. You talk about, I asked very naively one of my guests last week, and he put me into place quite quickly, that um, the people who live in Gaza, Gaza civilians, will not see Israel as their liberators from Hamas. Indeed, after Israel has bombed Gaza, they will probably hate Israel even more. How do we create a society of, um, how do we, how do we move forward? I'm not. I'm not sure whether they will. They, they definitely won't see Israel as their liberators. I'm not sure if they'd hate Israel um, more. There was a lot of hatred already. Do you know what I mean? So, <laughs> um, what I will say is, like I like I spoke about earlier, um, it's a it's a long process. What I'm talking about, and I think that people need to come to terms with that. Everyone wants to possibly do what happened in 2000 when Barack met Arafat, sit down, put out a you know, 91% of this, 100% of that, remove this, place this, we'll divide this. That can all still be done. Okay. And, but essentially, when you look at the reasons why Arafat walked away from the deal and later Abbas walked away from the deal, was something called the right of return. So uh, that would basically, they demanded that 6 million Palestinian refugees would be able to return into sovereign Israel. That would be the pre-1967 lines which would be a demographic defeat. So I always say the only two-state solution Arafat ever accepted was an Arab state in Gaza and the West Bank and an Arab state where Israel exists today, where its sovereign territory is. So I don't think it would be wise to go back to that. I think that the method to do this is through the region. It's always been a regional conflict. It will need to be solved regionally. Um, and essentially, Saudi is the avenue through that. Now, what is what is game-changing uh, is that everyone has leverage on everyone in this moment. Uh, that's what people don't understand, is that the Saudis need Israel to move forward um, for their kind of, the progress that they're trying to make in their own society. I always say peace with Israel wasn't because these Arab states woke up and decided one morning they like the Jews. It's collateral benefit of a, of a deeper societal change going on within their country, um, and Israel's collateral benefit of that. Um but obviously there's Iran, there's military things. So they, we have leverage over them. They need us for that. And we need them essentially for the same, for the same reason, but also because Israel cannot continue to exist as a nation that dwells alone. And the uh, Arab world have, uh, as well as America especially, have massive leverage over the Palestinians. The Palestinians essentially are the only group who live outside the global reality of accepting a nation state in, in the, in the 1940s when they rejected partition. They've subsequently followed down that same pathway of preferencing no Jewish state within any, any borders above preferencing a state for themselves within some borders. We know this from Camp David Tubb and Camp David II. And the reasons for this is, is, is really the ideology. Mm-hmm. And until that ideology is changed, there's no two-state solution and there's no peace. So I think the model to look at here is um, what America did with Imperial Japan. America realized that Japan will continue to be a fascist terrorist state, basically, the day after it leaves and will continue uh, committing atrocities to, despite the fact that it had been 
heavily militarily defeated and its infrastructure was gone. So basically, to, to, to cut it short, what I would say is that every single country sends a representative or an ambassador to a, another state. We have ambassadors here from Bahrain, from Morocco, from Jordan, from Egypt, from the U.S. I think it would be wise, and it could be not an ambassador but a representative, to for the U.S., the U.K., Germany, and France, which are the biggest donors of the Palestinians, who, by the way, just to note this, the Palestinians are the largest receivers of foreign aid mm. in comparison to any group of people. And then you include the allies, uh, the, the Arab allies, who have played a very middle ground game for very good reason, because this is actually something that they would be looking to, looking to do. But that would be Bahrain, Morocco, Egypt, Jordan, uh, UAE, and Saudi. Um, so essentially what you're, what you're looking at is a, is a representative body of 10, 11 countries, each with a team of 10 that serve as a, as a governing system around one of the Palest- a Palestinian leadership that can be identified as essentially being, wo- being willing. They don't have to, uh, as firstly commit to it, but like the Japanese, just be willing. And the reason, and, and you can force them into being willing as well because the Palestinians essentially exist merely because of their foreign aid. Yeah. And it's unconditional. If you, I think a good microcosm for this, and I'll try to keep this uh, short so we can carry on to something else. But if you look at the Palestinian textbooks, their, their education curriculum, it's, it's rife with anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. the glorification of jihad and martyrdom. And the U.S. and the EU and the Arab states are funding that. Now, it's not in their interest to fund that anymore if they recognize that this war is ideological. So, therefore, you basically turn to the Palestinians and you say, right, here's X amount of money for your education system, but this is the textbook you'll teach. That's what the Americans did with Japan. They removed their textbooks, which taught fascism and violence, and they put democracy and coexistence in it. Uh, You can do the same with infrastructure. The Palestinians are given hundreds of millions to build infrastructure. We saw where that's gone. Even in the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, it doesn't go to where it's supposed to. You tell them exactly what they have to build. You build A, B, and C. If even a cent goes to anything else, the funding is cut. That's the game that needs to be played. They've proven to have no responsibility. So, you know, that's essentially that's how you you have to play this game. Everything's got to be conditional. Sam, it's so good to see fresh ideas coming through and articulated so incredibly well. We're going to leave it there. You're welcome to stay on um, for my next guest. But we're going to chat again more because uh, I enjoy chatting to you. And as I said, it's good to have uh, fresh ideas.